Hello and welcome to another edition of the China and Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Paris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Kobus Van Staten, who's normally in South Africa, but today is uh, gone from summer all the way to winter in Nagoya, Japan. So from Cape Town to Nagoya, Japan, Kobus, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. It's a little bit, uh, a little bit chillier than it is in Cape Town right now, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's, it's very cold and very dark, but I actually quite like it. <laughs> it's a nice change from the summer. We're going to talk about three topics today in the show. First, we're going to talk about Liu Guijin's visit to uh, South Sudan and Sudan mediating uh, peace talks between the two countries. And then we're going to go on to talk about an article written by Henry Hall in London on the uh, Ghanaian opposition in Ghana, the Ghanaian opposition who is taking a similar page and a similar tone to what uh, Michael Sada did in Zambia in terms of politicizing the Chinese in their upcoming elections. And then finally, we're going to talk about an article that got quite a bit of attention this week on Twitter. Uh, it's this us versus them, Africa, uh, America versus China in Africa. So we'll talk about an article in Asia Times that got quite a bit of buzz. So let's get started first, Kobus, with uh, the delegation that went to South Sudan and Sudan, led by Liu Guijin, who's, of course, China's top man for Africa. And what I found so interesting about this and wanted to get your feedback on was now the China. this is really the first indication that the Chinese are playing a role that the Americans used to play. This is a, a mediation role. This is one where China is in between the two parties and seen as a reliable negotiator to try and kind of settle hostilities between uh, the South Sudanese and, uh, and their former con- compatriots in Sudan. What, do you, what was your impression of this? It's it's interesting for me, and I was wondering whether whether this is indicative that China is going to start taking a wider diplomatic role generally, or whether they're just so perfectly positioned to to mediate this particular kind of uh, dispute between North and South Sudan. Um, you know, kind of, and, and uh, I actually wanted to ask you about that. Do you think this is this is actually this is points the way for Chinese diplomacy in the future, or is this only a once-off situation? Well, I mean, their investments are so huge in Sudan, and remember, their investments in Sudan are kind of concentrated in the oil sector, which transcend the border between South and North Sudan, or South Sudan and Sudan. So you bring up a good point. Is this a unique situation, or are we going to see, you know, all of a sudden a Chinese delegation at the Arab-Israeli peace talks? Hard to see that coming, frankly. But, um, you know, China's interests now are so much more varied than they were 20 years ago, and you're seeing them as, I mean, a legitimate intermediary in South and North Sudan. Uh, So... Um, it's a good point as to whether this is a one-off or whether or not we're seeing a trend, uh, you know, China playing a larger diplomatic role. It's hard to tell. I think this is right now, this is rather a unique situation in part because of China's heavy investments in the area. China was a longtime defender of, of, of you know, what North Sudan or Sudan, if you will. And so I think there's some credibility that they have there, and their stakes in the South are also very important. And the fact that they went to the UN Security Council and didn't resist the separation of the two countries um, gives them a little more credibility than than other countries. But it's hard to see them going necessarily to the next step on an international role, again, mediating water disputes or mediating peace disputes in the Middle East or elsewhere. Yes, it also seems to me that in a way, both China, the North and the South, they're kind of roughly on the same page. I mean, the issue isn't whether whether Southern oil should be sold to China or not. The issue is obviously is whether is what kind of, uh, you know, kind of levies the South should pay to the North to use their pipelines. And in the in the sense that, you know, kind of it seems to me that the South and North and China all actually 
want the, the ultimate kind of the, the same kind of ultimate outcome in the sense that they they all want southern oil to be sold to China and to you know kind of and to be sold via northern pipelines. They just the dispute is how much the, you know who is going to be paying for what. Um, and it seems in that sense that China is kind of perfectly positioned to, to mediate the situation. Well, and China, of course, is reaffirming, going back to its instincts in diplomacy and kind of asking for a multilateral uh, kind of solution to this. So they're, reaff- they're encouraging both parties to work with the African Union, the European Union, and even the United States. And so, uh, you know, in some ways, this is a, a, a very responsible side of, of Chinese diplomacy that we don't always see. I mean, last in our last podcast, we talked about, you know, China's growing relationship relationship with Robin Mugabe in Zimbabwe. And that, of course, you know, certainly doesn't help China's image in Africa. So I, I feel like this, these kinds of di- diplomatic initiatives led by Liu Guijin, and who, by the way, Liu has a lot of credit on the continent. This is a guy who's very, very visible. He's just as he's the equivalent of Johnny Carson for the United States, uh, who's the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, and you know, and has a very public role, much more so than any other Chinese diplomat. And so I see if Liu Guijin can kind of use that credibility that he's got to try and resolve this um, and keep that oil flowing. And of course, China has very direct interest in Sudan to keep that oil flowing. Um, it'll be interesting if it does set a precedent, and if other countries then look to to China as a possible mediator, maybe an alternative to the West. I mean, do you get the sense in South Africa that there is Western fatigue and that they're looking for an alternative? Um, Or is this really, in your view, from a South African point of view, a one-off? I think in South Africa, um, you know, I think South Africa has, has obviously has very friendly relationships with both Europe and America. So I think um, there's ideological kind of Western fatigue in, in South Africa in the sense that people, you know, kind of people tend to love to criticize the West because and people love to hear criticism of the West. But I think South Africa um, is some... Generally, South Africans are still a little bit more suspicious of China than they are of, of America. Um, and it seems to me that the rest of Africa might be leading South Africa in, in, in this respect, leading them in, you know, in an eastern direction, because South Africa has very friendly traditional relationships with the West. Well, I'll bring up one point. Last week, a very important statistic came out of South Africa. For the first time ever, China purchased more coal uh, than any other country from South Africa. So I wonder, just as in Sudan... Um, where China is the largest oil purchaser, uh, as China's investments and as China consumes more of South Africa's natural resources, will you see a shift, um, you know, towards, I don't know if it's, you know, it, will, 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 will relations warm if, if more money comes and that, de- and that trade relationship deepens with, with China? I think definitely so. I think already the South African, uh, pre, you know, president, uh, President Jacob Zuma, kind of made a made a big speech recently, saying that China isn't involved in neocolonialism in Africa. You know, kind of that China, China is a kind of a responsible economic partner, and so on. So I think you know, kind of more and more, they, you know, kind of the ruling party, the African National Congress in South Africa, is coming out. You know, they're, they're definitely being very friendly towards China, um, and you know, kind of, and, and I, I suppose that that is it. it I mean, there's no other way. It will definitely, that relationship will deepen the more, you know, the, the deeper the economic relationships go, I think. And just uh, one reminder, of course, the it was the ANC or the, the South African government that denied a visa to the Dalai Lama, which now was revealed last week as well. Uh, that that was done, what we all knew was for political pressure from the Chinese, but it was revealed that, in fact, there was overt political pressure put on the South African government to deny the Dalai Lama 
a visa for Desmond Tutu's 80th birthday, if I recall. And then also, if you recall, a week after that, it was the ANC, a big ANC delegation that went to Beijing to meet with, uh, with senior Chinese officials. So that relationship is getting much, much closer. And I guess the question for me, and we'll just wrap this topic up here, is, uh, again, what you asked me, but I'm kind of turning it back on you. Are we seeing a one-off in, in Sudan or possibly... Could we see this template replicated in a place like South Africa or in Southern Africa in that region? Well, you know, kind of, um, it, this, this is interesting for me. I recently read a, an article in the Wall Street Journal, which which alleged that that Africa, that China's um, in, in, in importing of oil and gas from Africa is actually dropping, um, and that they're, that they're importing more, that they're, they're investing more in American shale gas um, you know, kind of, and, and that that it implied that this is where Africa's next, you know, kind of phase of energy investment is going to go. I'm um, saying that China's going to gain gain kind of, you know, kind of technological knowledge as well from from you know, kind of from the kind of fracking that's happening in America. Uh, around shale gas and, and shale-related oil. Um, so do, do you see that, that African that Chinese, uh, you know, kind of energy investment in Africa, do you think it's going to keep increasing? It's no doubt that it's going to keep increasing. I mean, every indication that we see is the fact that the Chinese are deepening not only their oil and gas interests, but also, as we saw in South Africa last week, their coal purchases, which is rather unusual because China being a massive coal producer itself, the fact that it's outsourcing uh, its coal uh, production as well is something that I find remarkable. I didn't think that was something that they needed to do, uh, but it's happening. And so their energy uh, is coming is coming from Sudan. It's coming from Equatorial Guinea. It's coming now and going to help us in a transition here. Ghana is one of the other places that's surfacing on uh, China's radar. And Ghana is an interesting case here. And Henry Hall, who writes the China Africa newsletter, and it's a fantastic newsletter, it's at ChinaAfricanews.com. Uh, and if you don't subscribe to it, I highly recommend it. It's a great way to kind of get a, um, a summary of the of the week's news if you're not on Twitter and if you just want an email. He also blogs uh, for me at uh, France 24, France24.com. And he recently wrote an article on how Ghana's opposition is looking to Zambia for election tactics. Now, if we recall in Zambia... Uh, China was a major, major factor in the elections, in the recent elections that gave uh, Michael Sada the presidency. And, uh, and in Zambia, uh, in Ghana, that is, they are coming up with on their own elections. And the uh, Akufo Addo party, the opposition party, is now challenging the ruling NDC party about a $3 billion loan that the Chinese recently made. And remember, Ghana is one of the newest entrants into the oil and gas club. They have discovered huge deposits of, uh, of fossil energy off of their coast. And China, of course, is going to be a player there. So as you look at what happened in Zambia, Kobus, what do you see happening and translating over into Ghana? And do you think, again, just like we talked about in North and South Sudan, is this a is the situation, the politicization of China as an election issue? Is it a one-off thing in Zambia? Or could it be transported, translated, transfigured, whatever you want to do it, bring it up to Ghana? I think it already is that as as a as a anti-China kind of sentiment as a, as an election tactic is already being exported. I think um, not only in Ghana, it's, it seems to be very strong. It actually has even shown up in in fights in South Africa between between the the ruling ANC and its own kind of youth league, um, the, its youth wing. You know, kind of that, that the same kind of rhetoric has, has, has come up. Um, it's. I was wondering. I, it, it seems to me if, if I just have to kind of make it my own kind of prediction. I was wondering if it won't go the same way in Ghana as in Zambia. 
Oh, we're losing you there. That, we're, you know, we're losing your connection. At the moment, that's... Uh, we just lost your connection okay. there very quickly. But uh, let me just kind of... You, you broke up there a little bit from Japan. And again, I apologize to everybody for our Skype connection yes. today. But um, so it is being exported. We're seeing it appear in South Africa. You're seeing it appear in places like Namibia. Uh, you're basically seeing it anywhere that has... Uh, some sense of an open election. We did not see it, interestingly enough, that much as an election issue in the DRC recently, where they just had their election, and the Chinese are a very big player there, but it wasn't politicized in the same way. So I guess there's one kind of question is that the more democratic or open it is and less corrupt, so in a place like uh, Mozambique, you probably, um, Zimbabwe, excuse me, you wouldn't see a big Chinese role because the elections aren't very open. But in a place like South Africa or Ghana, you might see a greater role. That might be the indicators to whether or not China is a factor in elections. And it, I, I think so. And it's also, it seems that, um, you know, I mean, Ghana has a relatively free press. Um, and it seems like the press is kind of run with all kinds of like pretty crazy kind of um, anti-Chinese allegations. Um, some of, you know, very few of which I could actually, you know, kind of kind of back up with it with any kind of proof that I could find, um, you know, kind of. Yeah, so so it's it's very interesting. I mean, one one that kind of drew my attention was was uh, allegations that that the Chinese are trafficking prostitutes into Ghana. Well, you know, and while Akufo Addo is trying to politicize this $3 billion loan, there's a lot of resentment in Ghana, and you see this in other parts of Africa as well, at exactly this idea of not necessarily the state-owned enterprise level, that very, very high-end level of corruption. I think there's a lot of resentment on the growing presence of Chinese in communities and the local business level, and then also, of course, on the prostitution level and this idea of importing labor and whatnot. Um, And so it's that individual level which actually might capture people's emotions much more than the high-end corruption, because I think people aren't phased by high-end corruption in many parts of Africa, because that's something that's relatively new. But when they see direct competition for jobs, they see a direct change in their community, ethnic changes, which they hadn't seen before, those those are much more ripe for manipulation in in my view. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was also wondering whether it's going to go the same way as Zambia went in the end, you know, kind of like, you you know, China baiting works fine as an election tool, but then people tend to back off it once they actually get into government. Well, they, you know, I mean, Michael Sada, you know, backed off very quickly from his very provocative rhetoric, because in part, I think they recognize that they need the Chinese as as two things. One is a, as a flow of cash, but also as an alternative to the pressure that they're getting from the West. It's very good to have this negotiating card, to be able to tell the IMF, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, the United States, the European Union, anybody of the, you know, who to say, well, listen, if you don't want to do it our way, we'll talk to Beijing. And that's a very useful tool. But as an opposition party, and we see this right now in the Republican debates in the United States, it's easy to say anything. And then once you get into governing, it becomes much, much more difficult. So um, I think you make a good point about whether or not they'll be able, if they win the election, they'll be able to, uh, you know, to hold on to those relationships. And if China doesn't, you know, personalize this too much, um, and as they haven't, they don't seem to have done in Zambia, uh, their relations with Sada seem actually rather stable all in all. Yeah, yeah, um, and uh, you know, it, it all it all also kind of happens against the background of the massive loan um, from China that's that's about to come in soon in 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 Ghana, um, and uh, you know, kind of again, like similar to the to what we discussed around the DRC, there was again criticism of the terms of the loan, saying that it's it's too it's too conditional, um, and uh, you know, kind of I was wondering, I want to actually ask your opinion, like why do you think the the Chinese government negotiated this kind of level of 
of conditional kind of loan deal uh, when they're actually quite competitive in, you know, kind of in, in normal tender, you know, in, in normal tendering processes as well. Well, again, I don't know, and what we no one really knows, because the Chinese loan system and the aid system and their even their investment systems are all very, very opaque. Uh, so it's, you know, while the West is a very opaque system too, the United Nations is not a model of transparency, at least we have some indication to how loans like this are done. Whereas with the Chinese, it is still a... Uh, you know, really a black box in many ways, and we don't know what's inside that. I mean, that's what Deborah Braudigam has been writing for a long time, is that where these loans come from, who actually generates them, what the agenda of the loans are, varies tremendously by who's actually, whether it's the commerce ministry or whether it's a private loan out of, uh, or semi-private loan out of a, you know, a state-owned enterprise. Um, those, those are very complex terms. So I, I certainly don't have any of the insights to be able to kind of say, why would they put conditions on this loan? The question as to whether or not these types of loans ultimately help China or does it kind of assign them back into this neocolonialist label that um, a lot of the debt-making loans of the past 30, 40 years, that's another kind of area I don't really quite understand why the Chinese would follow in that path either with those conditionalities because it did really smell to me yes. like an IMF type of loan. Exactly, and ex exactly, and, and I think there's another issue as well, which is like to which extent are the Chinese going to be able to to actually reclaim the the money they loaned, you know, kind of uh, in the end. I mean, you know, particularly in in, in the case of, of I mean, Ga you know, Ghana's relatively stable, but in the case of a place like the DRC as well, it's like you know, kind of which kind of how which mechanisms are in place for China to actually get its money back. Well, they want the resources. I mean, for them, I don't know if they want the cash back, but they want it back in some kind of collateral. So whether they get $3 billion back in Ghana from the loans or they get it back in natural gas, you know, tomato, tomato, I think, in my opinion. Um, but I think it's an interesting trend to watch how, the, how China now is becoming a very, very intimate domestic political issue in lots of countries. And, will, and the question, I guess, that Henry Hall raises is, will Michael Sada be the template? firebrand when you're on the opposition and then kind of get closer and kind of hug the Chinese, the panda, when you get into power. Um, and at the same time, try to do what when I, what I like about Michael Saad is he said he wanted to negotiate on better terms and he wanted to do a deal that the Chinese would do for themselves. Because when the Chinese negotiate with Westerners, they say, listen, you're going to leave us technology, you're going to give us training, you're going to give us capital investment, and we're not going to let you come into this country and just extract and so in some ways, it's kind of encouraging to see Africans kind of negotiate the way the Chinese do. Yes, yes, no, I completely agree. Yeah. And I mean, you know, kind of more parity between Africa and the rest of the world can only be a good thing, actually. It really can only be a good thing. And so I, I do hope that these opposition parties, you know, do in fact follow Sada's lead, because I have a great deal of respect for Sada and how he's handled the Chinese quite well. I don't necessarily agree with all of the you know, provocative, bombastic talk that he did. But I do like this idea of saying, hey, listen, you want to be treated with respect, then you're going to have to do things our way. And that kind of giving a backbone to African governments and not simply just take the cash and run. Okay, let's move on to our final topic. And this is one that I know that you're going to uh, have quite a few comments on. Um, and it was, a, it was an article in Asia Times um, written by Francis Njubi Nesbitt last week called America versus China in Africa. And it got quite a bit of buzz on Twitter, lots of sharing and lots of commentary. And the part that caught my attention 
was so much of this reference of neocolonialism um, and the scramble for Africa and these terms that are, you know, define uh, the 19th century and 20th century role of Western role in Africa and are somehow being, again, translated onto or transposed onto the Chinese role. What was your kind of opening kind of thought on this uh, on this piece? Well, I mean, that that is definitely the part that struck me as well. I mean, you know, kind of in, in the first place, my, my, my first initial kind of reaction to it was um, I, I feel that it doesn't give enough uh, credit to the agency and the differences between individual African governments, you know, kind of... Um, you know, it it, it 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 has the danger of falling again into a situation where Africa is essentially a place, you know, kind of a, a kind of a background for for kind of struggles between other between other kind of entities, um, and it doesn't kind of you know kind of make enough distinction between between different cultures, different kind of politics, different kind of systems within Africa. Yeah, I mean, it's like Africa. You you don't you you I can't imagine them describing Europe as a. I mean, people often do define Europe as a place, but that's a that's an, an oversimplification too, because to compare the French to the Portuguese is you know you haven't been able to do it, and to take the Ghanaians and the South Africans and the Libyans and the Egyptians all the way down to the Angolans and lump them all together um, does seem like an oversimplification. I mean, so that's a that's an excellent point. But see, the funny thing about this article that. It was, I thought, raised, it was a good, it was a well-written article. I thought it was actually, you know, a nice summary of the key issues in kind of Sino-African relations. But at the same time, when you see these references to the scramble for resources and the scramble for Africa, which, of course, goes back to the uh, 1885 Treaty of Berlin and how Africa was kind of carved up. And then there was this rush of Western European colonial powers into grab as much of, uh, of Africa's natural resources as possible. And now people talking about the second scramble between the U.S. and Africa. And I just think that that's a really big mistake to put it in those terms. I also think so. I mean, it's it it is admittedly a mistake that 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 others have made as well. You know, kind of and um, you know, kind of it, it's a, it's a theme that comes up um, within Africa as well, frequently from from African intellectuals as well. But I agree. I find it very, um, yeah, a, a very kind of limited way of, of of looking at the situation. In the first place, I mean, it, it makes it seem as if as if um, Africa, in a weird way, doesn't have a, a right to really look for a market or for its own resources. You know, that there's no other place, there's no other way for Africa to be except to be robbed. Um, you know, kind of so that, that you know, kind of that, it, it, well, I, I, I think maybe to put, to put it clearer way, you know, kind of it, it just, it, 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 it portrays an Africa that's much more passive than I think Africa actually is at the moment. Well, how much of this, you know, when I talk to Westerners about China and Africa, and again, everybody just kind of, the first instinct is that, you know, there's this rolling of the eyes and the Chinese are colonizing Africa the same way that the French and the British did and so forth. And then you kind of push them a little bit and they're going to go, okay. But I want to want, I was curious too about the kind of reverse side of it. You know, my experience in Africa is limited largely to the DRC. Um, and in the DRC, there was this concept of Mundele. And Mundele was anybody who is not black African was white. And what it kind of alluded to was a rather unsophisticated view of the outside world um, and largely a view that was shaped by colonialism. And so I'm curious to hear what you think in terms of how, while the West frames things in very colonial terms still to this day, how much of that comes from Africans themselves? And again, I'm falling victim to the same thing I just started with at the beginning of this rant by, you know, lumping together all of these different people. But let's just for the sake of simplicity, generalize Africans and say, how much of it do you think of this attitude and this perspective um, comes from that side as well? 
I I tend to agree with you. I mean, you know, going to be in the South. I mean, South Africa is a much more multicultural country than the DRC. Um, but you know, I think I think there is still a kind of a an us and them kind of view of of outsiders um, from the African perspective as well. Um, <clears throat> and it's it's a problem for me because um, I think you know traditionally you know kind of South Africa's. Uh, I mean, not South Africa. Africa's um, uh, you know kind of real. Points of economic growth have been in places which have been very multicultural. You know, kind of places like, for example, Zanzibar. You know, kind of those have been real batteries of, of culture and economics and, and trade and everything. So, um, you know, kind of I, I am hoping that it's going to be possible for for African countries to develop a more kind of multicultural view of their own societies. But I agree with you. I think there's still a kind of a there's still a kind of a real kind of like us and them kind of racialist kind of view of of outsiders versus Africans, I think, from African society itself. Yeah, I mean, what I think this article and that this framing of, you know, the debate in colonial terms misses is that it implies that the Chinese are somehow, A, the same as the West, which the way the Chinese are engaging in Africa is radically different than the West did. Um, there's no I, there's no sense of imposing the Chinese way on uh, on Africans the way there is even to this day from you know the conditionalities tied to aid for example in terms of democracy and transparency uh, that you see coming from the IMF the World Bank the United States and the European Union among others the other thing is that I think is radically different is that this idea that the Chinese are um, a a single entity which we know they're much more diverse presence in Africa than the West was. So, for example, you've got Chinese peasants who are there, you've got Chinese SOEs who are there, you've got Chinese uh, large diplomatic teams that are there and whatnot. So they're really transcending um, a lot more levels of society than Westerners did uh, in many parts. Now, that's a big generalization because, as we know, in South Africa and as we know in, in, in East Africa as well, there were uh, the Boers uh, were farmers and, and not very high on the economic ladder. But what's interesting is that the Chinese are living in the townships, living in the communities. Hundreds of thousands of Chinese immigrants are coming. And I think that's redefining the shape. And that's not colonial at all um, when you see peasants moving in in this way. And so I think, again, the framing of, the, of these debates and the framing of the relationship in colonial terms is just a really... It's a big disservice. And articles like this, which I highly recommend people take a look at, this was a very good article, especially for people who are rather new to the subject. Um, it is um, it's a good article, and it just takes a left turn when you start bringing in scramble for Africa and colonialism and whatnot, because if anything, it's mercantilism. It's not colonialism. I agree, I agree. And I think it also, this is kind of, um, you know, kind of, this kind of comparison, I think, is also actually lets Europe off the hook, you know, because one of one of the one of the realities of the scramble of the original first scramble for Africa was that it, you know, kind of they they created the, the the kind of African states that we see today were created during that process, and they were they were um, created expressly to not be functional, you know, kind of they were created to not to not benefit the the, the, the citizens of those of the of the actual states, um, you know, and and the Chinese are coming in and and you know kind of working with with a state infrastructure that is you know 
albeit not not perfect, is actually they, they are they have managed to kind of get themselves working as states to a certain extent, and the Chinese are, are frequently coming in and, and actually making the kind of internal connections that make those states work more effectively. So in a weird way, I think the two are actually doing completely opposite kind of have completely opposite engagements with Africa. You know, kind of Europe and China actually have. Well, you know, I think the one commonality is in many respects the Chinese aren't doing anything in my view, I mean, this is a pretty bold statement here, to necessarily kind of combat corruption, for example, and the opaqueness of the way the Chinese relationships are with the senior elites in many African countries only encourages, uh, you know, a lot of corrupt behaviors that are not admirable. But in the other sense, you're talking a lot about the soft diplomacy and the soft power push, this health diplomacy, the idea of building roads and infrastructure that benefit the people, and really to reflect in some senses on as you, I think you bring up an excellent point here, and you and I are in, in, in a lot of agreement this, in this, this edition of the podcast, um, which is, you know, again, back to my examples in the DRC, you know, when, when the Belgians left, they only had 14 college graduates. Um, and there was a similar situation in Kenya as well after the British left, where they intentionally deprived the people of accessing uh, education and as, as a defense mechanism to, to protect the, the colonial government. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, you know, kind of as, as you know, the, you know, they, they also like the, the way that the, the, the infrastructure, that European infrastructure was designed was expressly designed only for extraction, you know, kind of while, you know, while to, to a certain extent, um, albeit again, uh, again, imperfectly, but I mean, Africa has, uh, China has been, has been making those, those kind of internal links, like, for example, building roads that connect big cities, or building the refinery that makes it possible to actually refine the oil instead of exporting it as crude, you know, kind of, so I mean, in that sense, I, I think, yeah, I mean, they, they have a radically kind of different position in, in Africa than, than Europe had. Um, even the very small thing of simply providing cheap cell phones um, and cell phone networks, you know, kind of in Africa, that alone is completely changing the face of Africa. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of, which is something that, you know, for like 500 years of Portuguese colonialism in, in you know, kind of in, in Angola, never achieved. That's right. I mean, it's, uh, and again, I think the, the conclusion on this is that the, these articles and these references to colonialism are misleading. Um, they're easy to do. They're convenient, I think, particularly for Westerners and even for Africans. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the, the Chinese don't fit in that box uh, very neatly. And so uh, so we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Kobus, where, if people want to kind of stay up on what you're doing, where can people find you? I am at, uh, at Stadenesk uh, on Twitter. So it's at um, S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And um, I'm soon from from early next year. I'm going to be uh, working together with uh, with the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University. So I hope to start publishing in their journals soon as well. Excellent. We hope to have also some of your your fellow academics from Stellenbosch come on the show. And uh, in the meantime, you can follow me on uh, on Twitter at eolander. That's e o l a n d e r. I'm tweeting almost every day on the top headlines on China and Africa. And then also later at the in this year, so we have. Of our, our New Year's resolution set out for both of us. Uh, I'll be launching uh, the China Africa Project, which is a website that will kind of coalesce around this podcast, Twitter feed, a Weibo feed, and uh, and some of the top headlines as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander in Paris. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>